Well, brethren, if you would take your copy of the Scripture and turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 1. If you want to follow along in the chair Bible, you can find where we are on page 909. And we're reading together Acts chapter 1, verses 12 uh, to the end of the chapter. Before we come and read the Scripture, let's ask the Lord to help us understand His Word. Would you pray with me once more? Heavenly Father, we recognize that Your Word is truth. And Lord, we pray that as we hear Your truth, that You would give us ears that listen. We pray that our hearts would receive, would welcome the very truth of the living God. And Lord, we pray that You would use Your Word to instruct us to train us in righteousness, or to equip us to be your servants, that we might live unto the glory of our Redeemer Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, brethren, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read the Scripture? Acts 1, verse 12. This is God's holy word. Then they, that is the apostles, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, and the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Acheldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Well, thus far, God's holy word. Brethren, please be seated. <clears throat> Well, I've titled our sermon this morning, The In-Between, and you may be wondering, if you even pay attention to the titles, what does that even mean? Well, in our text, we stand in between 
two massively significant markers for the church. The ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ to the right hand of God the Father, and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to consummate the new age at Pentecost. And the question is, what is the church to do while she is living in this in-between? Well, interestingly, two elements that mark the entirety of the church's existence, whether pre- or post-Pentecost, emerge here. Prayer and the Word. Yes, the apostles are waiting, but even as they wait, they are characterized by these fundamentals or core things, we might say, which always mark the true church. Devotion to prayer and attention to the Word of God. And those themes, shockingly, are going to persist throughout the book of Acts. And the apostolic message going forward through various epistles will tell us that those themes also persist in our in-between, between Pentecost and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church that is built upon Christ the cornerstone is a praying people and a Word-devoted people. And it will be through these means, prayer and the Word, that here the Lord Jesus will restore the number of twelve to the apostles after the loss of Judas. That's not an arbitrary number. It's a significant number that the foundation for the church might be laid. Let's note three things as we make our way together with this passage. First, I want you to see with me, one accord in prayer in verses 12 to 14. One accord in prayer. Now, we begin with a return, the apostles going back to Jerusalem in verse 12, from the mount called Olivet. And it seems like Luke is just telling us a, a geographical detail. But it really is more than that. It's actually a note of fulfillment and hope especially in view of previous prophetic statements. Now, Jesus had just said, this, or the apostles, sorry, the angel said to the apostles, this Jesus whom you just saw ascend, He will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. And then in the prophets, specifically Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4, there was a prediction of a day when the Lord would gather the nations for judgment having secured them by fighting for them, and then He would come and stand on the Mount of Olives. Now it's interesting that Jesus began His Passion Week, we might say, coming down from the Mount of Olives. It's about 200 feet overlooking Jerusalem, and it must have been quite a view. Jesus came down from the Mount of Olives and sunk into the depths as He would suffer and die for our curse. And now having triumphed on the cross, having been raised from the dead, He comes to this mountain and He ascends. And He gives His apostles their marching orders. You might think then of the Gospel which is about to go out as the victory message of King Jesus to claim His people. He's announcing that He's fought for us and He has won. Having conquered hearts, having snatched souls away from Satan's dominion, In His time, our Savior will return to this mountain with the last enemy death under His feet. Because you know He will bring about the day when there will be the death of death. We're already assured of that in Jesus' resurrection. But there's a day coming when death is forever finished. 
So we might think of Jesus standing on this spot, ascending from this particular mountain as a declaration of the already and not yet a victory. He's already prevailed. He's already inaugurated a new era, the last days. But we are waiting for the consummation. We are not yet arriving at the point where death is totally vanquished for all of the people of God. So as this people wait, that notion of waiting is picked up here in our text. The apostles walk back. We're told it's a Sabbath day's journey. You remember the Jews and all their rules about the Sabbath. You could only walk so far. So just under a mile, they make their way back to Jerusalem, specifically to the upper room. And I want you to notice here how the apostles are being obedient to what Jesus told them. He told them to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Spirit. Now, we observed last week that there's a lot of things that the disciples still misunderstand. They obviously have some growing to do about timing questions. But see here how they submit entirely to Jesus. They don't know what's about to unfold when the Spirit equips them, but they do know they need to heed the word of the Savior and be exactly where He told them to be. That is a small thing, but I think for us it's a crucial thing to notice. The church at times needs to be directed by Jesus, right? The church, we could say all the time, needs to be governed by the word of Christ. We need to give heed to what he says. We need to pay close attention to his directives. We need to wait while listening and obeying. We, this morning, may live in our own lives in times of uncertainty. We may know change is coming, and we don't know how it's going to affect us. But in all of our trepidation about the future, in our lack of clarity about the days ahead, what we do know we're supposed to do is trust and obey, <clears throat> is wait upon the Lord and do what He says. Is that the way that we live our lives? That's the posture here of the people of God. And as they wait, Luke tells us, verse 13, that they went up to the upper room. Now it's interesting, the word for upper room is different here than the one used in Luke 22, where the Last Supper was held. However, to call it the upper room suggests that it probably really is the same room. Pentecost is about to take place. This was one of the three annual feasts for the Jews. Lots of people would have been coming into Jerusalem. And if you knew the hotel that you wanted, you, you got it and you stayed there. That's probably the idea here. Well, just think for a moment of all the memories that that upper room would evoke. The memories of Jesus, His last sermon to them on the coming of the Spirit, the prediction of a traitor, the indication that all of them would fall away, scattering in fear. And yet here they are, coming back here, restored by grace. And they're gathered together to wait. And then Luke tells you who is there. He lists the 11 apostles present, calling attention to the fact that one of the 12, Judas, who was always last in every list, he's no longer with them. And the order is significant. Peter though he denied Christ, is restored. And he's taking the lead. And what an encouragement that should be to us. Believers can fall. Indeed, we could say believers can fall spectacularly 
and yet be put back in place by the grace of Jesus Christ. And Peter will be the focal point of this book for the next 12 chapters. And then after Peter in the list, usually Andrew came, but here it's Peter, John, and James, who you remember with Peter were the closest associates of Jesus. It was always Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Here the order is slightly different. Peter, John, and James. Because these men will also take specific leadership roles that are heightened in the opening of the book of Acts. In fact, besides the general reference to the apostles, which is going to occur numerous times in the book, none of the guys besides Peter, John, and James are mentioned again in the book of Acts. That's really interesting. Now, that doesn't mean those guys are unimportant. All of these men are tools with whom Christ is working to advance His kingdom and build His church. But some among the apostles are going to stand out with greater gifts and greater usefulness. And I think, brethren, we should take that principle to heart. In Christ's church, there's great diversity. We're all gifted by the Lord Jesus, gifted in different ways. We have different personalities. We have different experiences. We have different degrees of usefulness. Well, the apostles are simply a picture of that. They're all witnesses. They're all about to be filled with the Spirit. They all have the same calling. But Jesus will equip them with different levels of leadership. And just as creation itself is the theater of God's glory and it manifests diversity, and among humanity, no two of us are the same, this diversity is beautifully present in the church too. Indeed, even among those with very similar gifts, apostleship and exhortation, there isn't sameness. Isn't that a beautiful thing to note? You know, sometimes our world teaches us that Unity is found in sameness. No, it's not. That's not true of the Trinity. That's not true here of the church. And amidst the variety of gifts, strong leaders will emerge, but it will be unlike how things were when a strong leader emerged in Israel. Moses and Korah led a rebellion against him. Here amidst diversity, there's stability. There's no infighting for places of power, even like there was before Jesus rose from the dead and James and John's mama went and asked Jesus, can you give my boys a special place in your kingdom? No, all self-exaltation has been squashed. That is how it is to be among us. Whatever variety of gifts there are, we submit ourselves to God's calling in our lives. But while diversity is present, unity is a theme. What are the eleven doing? Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Now the phrase with one accord will be used ten times in Acts. And it always, whether for good or ill, indicates a unified purpose. In the early portions of Acts, it stresses the unified church. They're single-minded. They have one aim, one purpose. And this is the ideal for us as the people of God in the midst of all of our diversity we're united in heart. We labor with one goal. And what do you think that the devil's aim is going to be? If we're supposed to be focused on being united, he's going to come to try to rip us apart. He's going to come to try to set us biting and devouring one another, to quote Galatians 5, which is the language of a pack of wild dogs attacking each other. 
That can be how it is among the people of God. That is not how it is supposed to be. Acts is stressing this theme of unity, but it's stressing a theme of, of unity in one particular action. Prayer. Now, we don't know exactly what the apostles are praying for here, though likely they're praying for the outpouring of the Spirit. But the content here is not as important as the duty. Do you see what they're doing? They're devoting themselves to prayer. The apostles have a personal attendance to, a perseverance in, the task of prayer. It is a priority for them. Beloved, the unity of the church is best on display when we lift up our voices together to God, beseeching His mercy in prayer. This is a massive theme in Acts. You'll see it in Acts 1, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 6, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 12. I can keep going. It's everywhere. And as the apostles write, it's also evident. What does Paul say we're supposed to do in our Adversary against our adversary, the devil. We put on the armor of God. We take up the sword of the Spirit. But how does he conclude? What do we do? We're praying. And it's y'all praying. It's not you individually. It's y'all praying. Colossians 4.2 Y'all devote yourselves to prayer. This is a corporate thing. We all know that we have the, the duty of private times of prayer. But the Bible stresses repeatedly the duty of corporate prayer. Now, we fulfill that duty in one sense every time there's a pastoral prayer in our midst because we all pray together when that's going on. Some of you are, are not praying when that's happening. You're wondering about what's going on outside and hearing noises and getting distracted, thinking about what's for lunch. Everybody struggles with that. But you've got to remember theologically what you're doing. We are praying. The person praying, whether that's me or one of the elders or Parks is the mouthpiece of the Lord for us. It's also why we all are supposed to say amen when we're finished. Because we're doing this together. But this isn't just about when we meet to worship. This is a pattern of life. This is why we have a prayer meeting. Because we as the people of God need to be devoted to prayer. Is that evident in the life of our church? We cannot say we're an apostolic church if we're not devoted to to prayer. That won't be the last time I make that application to you in this book. This is really important. And who are the apostles praying together with here in this text? Notice in verse 14, they're praying together with the women. Well, who are they? Likely, these are the women mentioned back in Luke chapter 8, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and others who supported Jesus and the apostles in their ministry. And we should note again Luke's emphasis on the role of women in the church. The women are not apostles. The women are not preaching the message of Christ as witnesses of Christ. But in no way are these women undervalued or considered unimportant in the life of the church. They're faithful disciples. Now this statement that the apostles are playing with the women, you, we read that in the 21st century and we just keep on moving. This would be shocking to Jewish people because Jewish males separated themselves from the women. Indeed, the typical thinking of Jewish leadership was women can't be disciples. They're pushed to the side. But that is not how Christ treated women. 
He received their adoration. He commended their faith. He blessed them with the first sight of His resurrected body. He tells them to tell the apostles that He's raised from the dead. Men and women have different roles in the early church and in the church today. But that is no way indicating that the women are unimportant. They are contributing to the mission through prayer. What a great kingdom task. Additionally, we're told here that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was among them in prayer. She's distinguished by her biological relationship to Jesus, but she's simply one of the number praying, not elevated over them. But notice what's shocking at the end, the last group of people in prayer. And His, Jesus' brothers. Now, do you remember Jesus' brothers from the Gospels? Mark chapter 3, they thought Jesus was out of His mind. John chapter 7, they did not believe in Him. <clears throat> Just think of that. The perfect Son of God lived through His formative years and His ministry, and His own brothers who saw He was perfect and He never sinned, they didn't believe in Him. But then after the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared to James, one of His brothers, and He's converted. Apparently at some other point post-resurrection, the other brothers mentioned in Matthew 13, Joseph, Simon, Judas, later called Jude, and you would change your name too if that was your name. They believe. We're not told the circumstances of their conversion, but they believe. And again, this should give us hope. These were men scoffing at Jesus Christ. And now they're changed. What's the evidence that they're different men? Here they are gathered in prayer. Praying for something that they already know is coming. Don't let that pass you by. Should you pray for things that Jesus tells you is certainly coming? Yes. They're waiting on the Holy Spirit to come. They know He's coming. They pray anyway. You should pray for the building of the church. You should pray for laborers to be raised up. You should pray for King Jesus to come back. You know all those things are happening. But you should pray for it. Because humility is expressed in action by prayer. They're one accord in prayer. But then secondly, see with me now. They're guided by the Word. In the midst of their prayerful waiting, it's clear that they're reflecting on Scripture. They're turning to Scripture to help them understand what must have been still a striking loss. Judas, their friend for three years, a close companion, betrayed the Lord Jesus. How could this happen? How are they to make sense of it? Well, Jesus had explained His sufferings and glory were laid out in the Old Testament. So it makes perfect sense that they go back to Scripture to figure out something about this great betrayal and what to do. And we read verse 14. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. And a little tangent here, the company of persons was in all about 120. Don't you find that interesting? The names just listed in the previous verses were, were not comprehensive. There are unknown people present waiting and praying. We don't get the details about every believer in Jesus Christ here. And don't you know that's the way it is with the church too? There may be people among our church, people who judge themselves as totally insignificant. The Lord knows who you are. He numbers you. He loves you. He listens to His people engaged in this task of prayer. You don't have to have your name in lights to be counted among the number of the people of God. You don't have to be the preacher to be vital in the kingdom work of prayer. 
You may be a behind-the-scenes person, but the Lord knows you and your prayers matter. And this number, though not necessarily telling us of every person under Jesus' ministry who's been converted, it's a small number. It's less than us this morning. Think of that. Three and a half years of ministry, there's 120 people who've been saved, roughly. You would probably say, that's not a very successful ministry. Well, it isn't. Something's about to change, though. The Son of God preached with power and did great wonders, and 120 people are saved. But Jesus has told the disciples, you're going to do greater works than me. What did He have in mind? When the Spirit comes after Jesus is glorified, things are going to change drastically. In a day at Pentecost, we're going to go from 120 to 3,000 more souls added, and that may be counting only the men. The power of God is about to be displayed in a remarkable way. But then back to Judas' betrayal. Peter points out, verse 16, that the Scripture had to be fulfilled. The Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And take note of what's being communicated. Judas' betrayal was no surprise. As horrific as it was for these men to see their friend lead a mob to arrest Jesus, Jesus had spoken about it. And the Old Testament had spoken about it. What has happened in the birth, life, ministry, passion, death, and exaltation of Jesus was all written down beforehand. Things have unfolded according to the predetermined plan of God. Brethren, nothing is happening here by accident. And we should take comfort in that fact. Particularly in this fact, which is going to be repeated multiple times in Acts. That God is not surprised, but more than that, that God orders the world by His will and His sovereignty is such that it even includes the wicked actions of evil men. God is in control of the wicked actions of evil men. If that were not the case, we would have no assurance that any of God's plans would come to pass. If evil deeds were outside of His ordination, then evil could overturn what God intends to do. And every promise made to you would be, well, if it works out. But that's not the case. The Lord governs everything. And He will be the one to thwart the nations and unravel the counsel of the wicked. He will accomplish His purpose and the schemes of the devil will fall. Additionally, once more the apostles show us here that while they listened to Jesus, they still missed stuff. They heard Jesus talk about this stuff, but they didn't get it. Again, can't you relate? Some of us in the room, we've been reading the Bible for decades, and still we miss things. We fail to grasp what it's saying. But here's the clue. When you're perplexed, what do you do? You go back to Scripture to make sense of things. That's the model they give. The Holy Spirit spoke of this. And notice here that while the Holy Spirit spoke about it, we're told that He specifically is the author of the Word. Now, again, this is something I know that many of you probably already know and you're like, yeah, of course. But I want you to see something very specific. We know that God has made clear in the Bible that He spoke through the prophets, but now we're getting specific that the person of the Godhead who spoke through the prophets was the Spirit of God. The Trinitarian nature of God is clear in the New Testament, 
but it was already there before. You can't get to verse 2 in the Bible, Genesis 1-2, before you read of the Spirit of the Lord. But the Spirit of the Lord spoke by the mouth of David. We have in that statement divine authorship and human authorship. Or as Peter put it, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know, some in our day, we call them modern liberals uh, in a theological sense, they argue that we really need to focus on the human aspect of Scripture. The different authors, their styles, themes, even their vocabularies. And that can be valuable to a degree. But they still carry the idea that because man is flawed, Scripture has to be flawed because men wrote it. But do you see how Peter right here doesn't put up with that foolishness? It was the Holy Spirit, the unblemished person, the third person of the Trinity, who spoke by David. In other words, David was used in all his humanity, his personality, his experience, his style, but the Spirit produced absolute truthfulness. And in this case, what is the truth told? That Judas who had actually had a share in the ministry, a number of the twelve, that he is lost. Don't miss this statement that Judas had a share in the ministry. Judas preached. Judas healed the sick. Judas cast out demons. Judas was equipped by the Spirit for his office. But equipping of the Spirit is not the same thing as the regenerating salvific power of the Spirit. Go read about King Saul and you'll see something of the difference. And Judas, like Saul, meets a dark end. The religious leaders took the money that Judas threw back at them, 30 pieces of silver, and they purchased a field in Judas's name. So it's as though Judas buys it. That's the sense here Luke is communicating. The field was known as his. It belongs to him. It has a name. Verse 19, Acheldama, field of blood, which means it had some notoriety. And there Judas receives the reward of his wickedness. Matthew 27 reported that Judas hanged himself. Here we get more gruesome details. After falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Dear, dear friends, is God's judgment. Peter said it was prophesied. Verse 20, it's written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. That's Psalm 69. It's a messianic psalm talking about the sufferings of the Savior and the curse of God that would come upon His persecutors with blessings ripped away from them. Any who persecute the Lord. And it's further emphasized with Psalm 109. Let another take His office. This is an imprecatory, a a curse psalm that King David prays that God would curse His enemies cut down their life, let his name be blotted out. And that's what's true with respect to Judas. His name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. He's a traitor. He's a man of greed and cowardice and treachery. This man who knew blessing now gets destruction. And what a chilling thing that is. Brethren, it's it's not a pleasant subject, but we need to stop and take heed. This memorable event is recorded to make an impression. And it won't be the last time in the book of Acts where a wicked man is violently struck down by God. There will be more. 
it's a dangerous thing to stand against Jesus. It's a dangerous thing to, pre to pretend devotion to Jesus, only to serve your lusts. That's what Judas did. It will mean judgment. It will mean dishonor and death, but worse, it will mean an eternity in hell. This is what the Scripture is saying. Let us make sure that our commitment to Christ is not a farce, which Jesus will see right through. May we have real, deep, abiding devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. But let us be comforted as we read this, that even the fiercest enemies of the Gospel, wolves in sheep's clothing, they can't overthrow the plan of God. They only do what He predestined beforehand would happen. And then finally, see with me, seeking the Lord's man, recognizing the scriptural declaration of Judas's judgment, his removal from office, Peter draws the conclusion of necessity that he must be replaced. Another is to take his office, said God's Word. And the fact that he was numbered or counted among us suggests a definite number. So Peter, in obedience, moves to act. He was once told by Jesus, Satan demands to shift, sift you like wheat. But when you've returned, strengthen your brothers. Well, here he is. He's returned and he's strengthening the brothers. He's leading them through this hard thing. He's telling them to look to the Lord. Telling them what God's Word has to say. There must be twelve and he has to be replaced. Now we might think, eleven dudes going out to spread the Word about Jesus. That, that's enough, right? Well, Jesus had made promises to twelve. Chosen twelve, told twelve that they would sit on twelve thrones of judgment. And twelve is significant because twelve apostles parallels twelve tribes showing the continuity of the people of God. These twelve are the new Israel, we might say. And these apostles would serve as the foundation for the church building on Christ the cornerstone. So twelve is necessary. Judas must be replaced. Now this is a unique moment in the life of the church. The apostolic office itself is an unrepeatable office. And replacing Judas is an unrepeatable event. So we're not learning as we read this passage, how do we pick a leader in the church? That's not what this is telling us. What we're seeing is Jesus overcome the aim of the devil. Christ is about building His church. What do you think the devil's about doing? Destroying it. He's trying to tear it down. And he thought he came up with a master plan. I'm going to have one of Jesus' own betray him. Two people who claim to be religious leaders who are hypocrites, who are going to get Pilate to help them who they say they hate to have the innocent one condemned. This is Satan's magnum opus. And Jesus turned it into mush as he rises and ascends, proving that sinners are forgiven. And now the gospel is going to go out into enemy-occupied territory. Satan is the loser. Brethren, that's the thing to take away. Even when the devil does his worst, he cannot prevail. He strikes at the very heart of the church's leadership. And even then, his efforts are thwarted. Praise be to God. Now, that doesn't discount the pain of Judas's, Judas's betrayal or the assaults of the devil. Indeed, as the replacement plan is pitched, notice their qualifications laid out. Again, in Acts, this is the only time when there's an appointment to office without the church electing. So this is unique. 
The twelfth apostle needs to be a man. Verse 21, one of the men who accompanied us. Uh, and then he must have been with us for a certain period of time, uh, from the time of John's baptism to the days that Jesus rises from the dead, because this has to be a witness to Jesus' ministry, resurrection, and ascension. Well, there are only two guys who meet the qualifications. There's Joseph, verse 23, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice. This guy's got three names. Uh, the last one's a, probably a Latin or Gentile name. The second, Barsabbas, son of the Sabbath. It probably just distinguishes him from other Josephs because that was a common name. And then there's Matthias. These two men are put forward. But how is the church to choose? Well, unlike later elections, when the choice will be by the people, here the apostles recognize it's not for us to choose. The Lord must choose His twelve. So, verse 24, they prayed and said, You, Lord, and by the way, that is a reference to Jesus. They're praying to Christ. What a striking thing that is that we can just pass right over. They recognize He alone is God and they're praying to Him. You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. From Judas, turned aside to go to his own place. Let that last phrase send a chill up your spine. Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Where's that? It's to hell. I mentioned to you last week that heaven is a real place. The enfleshed, glorified Son of God is in a real place. Somewhere in this universe, Jesus is there on the throne. But hell is also a real place where those who refuse Christ go in eternal judgment. The church is going to move forward at Christ's direction. But Judas is lost. There's something unique though. As the church goes forward, how are they going to find out which dude they're supposed to take with them as one of the witnesses? Well, they cast lots. Which we might say is like drawing straws or throwing dice. You might think that's a really imprecise way, isn't it? But you've got to remember Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Do you know how far God's control extends? When you're playing that game with your children and you're rolling dice, God is discovering that they're going to they're gonna beat you. He's directing that you lose. Don't get mad at your children because they roll better than you do. God is in charge. That's what this is saying. And God reveals His control here. Now, interestingly, this is the last place in the Bible that the casting of lots is mentioned. And it suggests to us that the casting of lots exists in connection to the Old Testament way of finding God's will. It will not be the case going forward. After Pentecost, when the Spirit comes. But what will be the case is that Jesus answers prayer. And that's what He does here. He answers prayer. He chooses Matthias. And He will be of the number of the twelve. What will Matthias do? Well, he's going to be a witness, but interestingly, he's never mentioned again. His name never comes up. Because the emphasis here is not on Matthias. It's on the twelve coming back together who will bear witness to Christ but as they go forward, they cry out to the Lord and He directs them through prayer. Brethren, we close this chapter seeing that though Jesus has departed, though He's ascended on high, He still cares for His church. He still listens to their voice. He guides His people. 
He rules over them and stands beside them. And beloved, that is a truth that has not changed. We can seek the wisdom of Jesus as we come to Him in prayer and as we listen to His Word. Because He will never leave us or forsake us. He will never allow us to be struck down by Satan's schemes. What a comfort this passage is to us in the midst of sobering truth. Well, may we be found as a church devoted to prayer and guided by the Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for so much truth that You lay before us in this text. And Lord, we pray that we would take to heart what is both chilling, the death of Judas, and what is comforting, the sovereignty of God extending to every detail. Lord, may we take assurance that You are governing all things, but also, Lord, that You were pleased to listen to the voice of Your people. Hear us as we pray to You, O Lord, and grow us in the grace and knowledge of Your Son, Jesus Christ, whose name, in whose name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.